This is Shakespeare Closely Read. I'm your host, Mark Naftal. In this podcast, I read the works of William Shakespeare and other authors in the public domain. In addition to reading these works in their entirety, I'll stop frequently to comment on the text, its meaning, and lessons to be drawn. This is a place for lovers of Shakespeare's words, words, words. I delight in the beauteous language and believe through this beauty we can find truth and how to live a virtuous life. I hope this podcast can help students understand Shakespeare better, and I would appreciate his sometimes difficult language. Maybe you can use it to help you write papers or study for tests. Drop me an email at shakespeareclosely at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, alternative interpretations. I would like some help. Let us begin. We are uh, in the process of wrapping up Plutarch's uh, life of Coriolanus, and we've now been looking at the comparison um, in Plutarch's usual parallel lives method between Alcibiades and uh, Coriolanus, both uh, considered as turncoats to their country, although Alcibiades went back and forth um, several times, as I recall. So let's just pick up. As regards money, Alcibiades, we are told, was often guilty of procuring it by accepting bribes and spent it ill in luxury and dissipation. Coriolanus declined to receive it, even when pressed upon him by his commanders as an honor. And one great reason for the odium he incurred with the populace in the discussions about their debts was that he trampled upon the poor, not for money's sake, but out of pride and insolence. So we see there that uh, Coriolanus was not considered to be um, greedy, um, but that he was prideful um, and, and insolent. Uh, in uh, Plato's depiction of Alcibiades, who, who came in the middle of the night in their uh, symposium party, he some, comes across as sort of a playboy. And uh, Coriolanus certainly doesn't seem to be uh, treated that way. Um, back to the text. Antipater, in a letter written upon the death of Aristotle, a philosopher observes, amongst his other gifts, he had that of uh, persuasiveness. And the absence of this in the character of Marcius made, it, made all his great actions and noble qualities unacceptable to those whom they benefited. Pride and self-will, the consort, as Plato calls it, of solitude, made him insufferable. With the skill which Alcibiades, on the contrary, possessed to treat everyone in the way most agreeable to him, we cannot wonder that all his successes were attended with the most exuberant favor and honor his very errors at times being accompanied by something of grace and felicity. And so in spite of great and frequent hurt that he had done the city, he was repeatedly appointed to office and command, while Coriolanus stood in vain for a place which his great services had made his due. The one, in spite of the harm he occasioned, could not make himself hated, no, the other, with all the admiration he attracted, succeeded in being beloved by his countrymen. Okay, to me, that, that looks like more the fault of the Athenians and the Romans in uh, Coriolanus or, or Alcibiades. Uh, Alcibiades comes across as a consummate politician uh, willing to bend himself uh, to the crowd, whereas Coriolanus stood on principle. Now, I suppose that could come across as insolence, though. And uh, um, as we hear in Plutarch, Coriolanus wanted to become consul, um, but could not... Um, uh, could not bring himself to, to curry the favor of the crowd. Bathotex. Coriolanus, moreover, it should be said, did not as a general obtain any successes for his country, but only for his enemies against his country. 
of course, in, uh, in Shakespeare, he's seen as sort of the author of the victory, uh, hence the name Coriolanus. Alcibiades was often of service to Athens, both as a soldier and as a commander. So long as he was personally present, he had the perfect mastery of his political adversaries. Calumny only succeeded in his absence. Coriolanus was condemned in person at Rome and in like manner killed by the Volscians, not indeed with any right or justice, not without some pretext occasion by his own acts, since after rejecting all conditions of peace in public, in private, he yielded to the solicitations of the women, and without establishing peace, threw up the favorable chances of war. He ought before retiring to obtain the consent of those who had placed their trust in him, if indeed he considered their claims on him to be the strongest. Well, that is true. You know, he wasn't very wise and not disagreeing to a peace with the women uh, without consulting the Volscians. I guess you could say he was emotional. Back to the text. He ought before retiring to the blah, 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 blah. If indeed he considered the claims on them to be the strongest, or if we say that he did not care about the Volscians, but merely had prosecuted the war, which he now abandoned for the satisfaction of his own resentment, then the whole thing would have been not to spare his country for his mother's sake, but his mother in and with his country, since both his mother and his wife were part and parcel of that endangered country. After harshly repelling public, public supplications, the entreaties of ambassadors, and the prayers of priests, to conclude all as a private favor to his mother, it was less an honor to her than a dishonor to the city, which thus escaped, in spite, it would seem, of his own demerits, through the intercessions of a single woman. Such a grace could indeed seem merely invidious, ungracious, and unreasonable in the eyes of both parties. He retreated without listening to the persuasions of his opponents or asking the consent of his friends. The origin of all lay in his unsociable, supercilious, and self-willed disposition, which in all cases is offensive to most people, and when combined with a passion for distinction, passes into absolute savageness and mercilessness. Well, I suppose today we might call him a sociopath. Men decline to ask favors of the people, professing not to need any honors from them, and then are indignant if they do not obtain them. Metellus, uh, Astrides, and um, Epilimandius certainly did not beg favors of the multitude, but that was because they, in real truth, did not value the gifts which a popular body can either confer or refuse. And when they are more than once driven into exile, rejected at elections, and condemned in courts of justice, they showed no resentment at the ill humor of their fellow citizens, but willing and contented to return and be reconciled when the feeling altered and they were wished for. He who least likes courting favor ought also least to think of, re of resenting neglect. To feel wounded at being refused a distinction can only arise from an overweening appetite to have it. So there we see uh, Plutarch might differ from Shakespeare. Shakespeare makes uh, Coriolanus not really wanting to be consul. Um, but Plutarch says, no, he wanted it. He just wouldn't, uh, um, he wouldn't go and curry favor. Alcibiades never professed to deny that it was pleasant to, to him to be honored and distasteful to him to be overlooked. And accordingly, he always tried to place himself upon good terms with all that he met. Coriolanus's uh, pride forbade him to pay attentions to those who could have promoted his advancement. And yet his love of distinction made him feel hurt and angry when he was disregarded. Such are the faulty parts of his character, which in all other respects was a noble one. For his temperance, continence, and probity, he might claim to be compared with the best and proudest of the Greeks. 
not in any sort of kind with all God is the least scrupulous and most entirely careless of human beings in all these points. So, rather a curious conclusion by Plutarch there seems to be saying, hey, if he'd, if he'd just been, let's see, love of distinction, such as the faulty parts of his character. So he had a, he is pride, I suppose, is what it came down to. Uh, at least in, in Plutarch's mind. So that's the end of uh, Plutarch's life of Coriolanus and the comparison you know, with Alcibiades. Um, let's see, a few concluding remarks on Coriolanus. I said it's, uh, to me at least, it's not one of Shakespeare's greatest plays. I read recently that it was one of his later ones, though, and in, in fact, it came, it was written later in time than uh than is julius caesar but as i indicated i wanted to go from where they would be in history um so we'll uh we'll proceed next uh with julius caesar uh, this is going to be a short episode i don't want to dive into julius caesar just yet i want to give it a a fair reading but a little preview it is a, it is a great play um has a wonderful has a, a lot of wonderful speeches in it um, and it sort of sets up again the, the political uh, discussions here between uh, a Caesar who was almost uh, paradoxically was seen as a man of the people and yet, yet a tyrant. In the um, tragic flaw theory of Shakespeare's plays, um, Ch- uh, Caesar's flaw is usually seen as ambition. Um, though I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I suppose that comes from Mark Anthony's um, great funeral oration of, uh, of Caesar. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Um, but there again, the, uh, sometimes the, the foil uh, for Caesar is seen as being Brutus, um, who was extremely idealistic. Uh, unlike the rest of the conspirators who just seem to be envious or uh, wanting to get back at Caesar, Brutus was supposed to be acting from uh, from out of love of his country and liberty. Um, there was a Brutus in Coriolanus, one of the early tribunes, but he didn't come off very well. But uh, the Brutus family was 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 very old. They were involved in other. Uh, times and sort of promoting the liberty of the Romans, the old Republican virtues, and that's uh, set off against um, Caesar, or more properly, perhaps Anthony, and yet uh, at the end of it, you know, after they have uh, uh, put down uh, the uh, the conspirators and Brutus is routed, uh, one of the, um, or Shakespeare has, um, Brutus said to be the noblest Roman of them all. Uh, and yet he did not end up very well and threw him with a bad lot. At least uh, Shakespeare didn't seem to approve of the other conspirators. Um, other famous lines in it, beware the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March. It's usually said that way. I think in the, it was the Marlon Brando version. It has a, has a guy plucking a chicken, which as we've seen, the Romans were great on finding um, omens in in entrails of, of chickens and so forth, of birds. So uh, at any rate, we will plunge back into Shakespeare himself in the next episode. And until then, adieu.